based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Okay. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is another in the series of the AUA Expert Exchange podcast program, discussions about managing GU cancer. And today specifically, we'll be talking about adjuvant therapy for renal cell carcinoma. Uh, I am very happy to introduce my co-host, Dr. Alexander Kudikoff. He is professor and chief of the Division of Urologic Oncology, Department of Surgical Oncology at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Victor, thanks so much for having me. It's a great topic. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So I'm gonna start out by uh, mentioning some of the learning objectives that you have set forth for this podcast. And there are three. First is to discuss the evolving landscape of adjuvant therapy for the treatment of renal cell carcinoma. The second is to identify best practices for risk assessment and patient counseling for adjuvant RCC therapy. And then the third would be to differentiate the roles of the urologist and the medical oncologist in the care of our patients with renal cell carcinoma. So Alex, why don't we start out with just an overview of kidney cancer? Absolutely. So it's kidney cancer is about the eighth most common cancer in the United States. It's, um, you know, about 65,000 people a year are diagnosed uh, and about 14,000 people a year pass from the disease. A little bit less common than bladder cancer and, you know, obviously a lot less common than prostate cancer. But it is a common cancer that urologists treat on really a daily basis. And the tricky part about kidney cancer, you know, just like um, sort of the same challenges that we face with prostate cancer, is that it is a very heterogeneous disease. We really see these very indolent masses, and we debate about over-treating those and whether we really change people's destiny by removing them or ablating them, um, and whether it really would behoove us not to even diagnose them. And what we're going to discuss today is really sort of the opposite side of that spectrum is the undertreatment issue is that, you know, about 30% of folks who get 
um, treat, who have their localized renal cell carcinoma treated are destined to have it come back. And how do we improve the outcomes in that space? That's been a real challenge over the years. So, I mean, how do we decide which patients with localized or apparently localized renal cancer are cured by our partial nephrectomy or nephrectomy? And who's going to benefit from adjuvant treatment? Right. So, I mean, the first question is, how do we predict recurrence? And uh, there's really a giant body of work that's gone into this. And there are, there's clearly the TNM staging system that keeps evolving that risk stratifies these patients. Um, there is a, really a plethora of prognostic models that have come out over the years. Um, really things like the Catan nomograms, the Leibovitch scores, the, you know, S sign scores, um, the UISS scores from uh, UCLA, There's, and MSKCC has got a prognostic um, uh, scoring system. And all these things try to do is that once you have the clinical pathologic variables following resection, you use those scores to predict the patient's risk of uh, future recurrence. And it's really uh, a really great paper that, uh, you know, Rabuza, one of my partners, r recently wrote, uh, wrote with um, one of our colleagues, Andres Correa, and the JCO, where they used, we're going to talk one, one about um, the ASSURE trial, which was a big adjuvant trial in a renal cell. And what they did is they used the existing predictive models. And they looked at how well those existing predictive models were in predicting recurrence in this you know, prospective uh, randomized trial cohort. They were pretty darn terrible. The TNM staging system was marginally better than coin flip. Coin flip. The C index was 0.6, was, you know, a flip of a coin is 0.5. And then, you know, for instance, the S sign score, which was the be gave the best predictive um, ability, was only with it had the uh, area under the curve of only 0.68, which is 68, you know, 68% accuracy, just, you know, not even halfway between a coil flip and a perfect prediction. So we're really not very good in 2019 in predicting which of these patients are destined to recur. So how do we uh, talk a little bit about how you would make a decision to use adjuvant therapy in a patient with renal cell carcinoma? What are some of the things that you're doing to when, when you talk to your patients about further treatment. Right, absolutely. So the role of adjuvant therapy now is, is, is quite controversial. And at most centers, it really, um, we really look to, um, to clinical trials in this space. Now, I think just to kind of back up a little bit and talk about what's happened in the kidney cancer space, it, it's really been, um, quite amazing of the number of agents that have um, that have come in to this uh, to this area of oncology. So, you know, before 2005, before serafinib, one of the TKI, the first TKI was introduced. I mean, there's really all there was is interferon alpha and IL-2. And IL-2 was FDA approved in, you know, 92. And for really almost, you know, 13 years, there was nothing new. And then comes in serafinib, in 2005, comes in sunitinib in 2006, pazopinib in 09, bevacizumab in 09, 
in, in you know exitinib there's just all these new agents are coming into the space um and more recently the you know the novel immunotherapy agents the nivolumab the ipinevo the pembrose and all of a sudden it's the embarrassment of riches right we just have all these agents with which we're treating our metastatic patients and the question as you say is you know what do we do what do we do for these patients who have a high risk disease high risk localized disease and we know that about a third of them are destined to recur can we use these agents to reduce their risk so the first big trial in the adjuvant space was the assure trial and what the assure trial did is it randomized patients with high risk renal cell and these were grade 3 T1Bs or higher okay and it randomized them to sunitinib for a year, to serafinib for a year. And just to remind our listeners, sunitinib and serafinib are these uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They're basically these drugs that disrupt the communication between the cancer cells and the endothelial cell, and they kind of suffocate the tumor, so to speak. So this, uh, this trial randomized patients with localized renal cell that were resected and were high risk, randomized them sunitinib, serafinib, and placebo. And this was almost 2,000 patients. And you know what it showed? It showed absolutely no benefit. There was no disease-free survival benefit. There was no overall survival benefit. I mean, all these patients got our side effects of these treatments. And when you looked at that very high-risk group um, of these patients, there was a sub-analysis published in JAM Oncology in 2017. There really wasn't, you know, if you, if you just looked at PT3s, PT4s, and node-positive disease, there was no, no signal in that subgroup either. And then came this just massive graveyard of effort, to be honest with you. There was, you know, after Assure, there were source. This was just reported at ESMO in 2019. Almost 2,000 patients, 1,700 patients randomized to placebo versus serafinib. No signal, no benefit to adjuvant therapy. The PROTECT trial, which is pazopinib versus placebo, um, no benefit. ATLAS trial, like Sitinib versus placebo, no benefit. Everest, which is the um, mTOR inhibitor, it's yet to mature, but nobody's expecting for that part trial to be positive. So there was just this massive amount of patients that were enrolled into these trials and, and really proved that there is no benefit to adjuvant therapy in the kidney cancer space, except there was one exception. There was one trial that was ESTRAC, um, <clears throat> which was another sunitinib trial. And that trial was a little different. They really, instead of picking high-risk patients, they picked very high-risk patients. So these were PT3 uh, or PT4 patients, node-positive patients, and they were randomized to sunitinib versus placebo. And there, in that one single trial, um, this was a much smaller trial than Assure. It was very similar to Assure, but a much smaller trial. In that one trial, there was a disease-free survival benefit. It was uh, in the sunitinib group, it was 6.8 years, and in the um, placebo group, it was 5.6 years. So at five years, disease-free survival, there was an 8% absolute risk reduction. Not enormous, but there. Um, and that is where the field stands. Is this, there's an isolated trial. This is an FDA-approved indication for sunitinib. And, and there lies the challenge is whether to really um, put our patients on sunitinib after their high-risk renal cell is resected, the problem with that trial is there was no overall survival benefit. Overall survival, the curves completely overlapped between sunitinib and placebo. And so when, when I talk to my patients, it's, it, this is really a decision of whether you want to take a drug 
for 12 months and be exposed to adverse events for 12 months just to have your scans look clean for an extra 12 months. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that, I think it's important the patient's getting counseled on that, but that's not for everybody. Um, you know, there, there are cer certainly some patients that really don't want to sort of get exposed to these uh, uh, um, AEs of, of sunitinib. So do you think that, you know, so we have one, we have one tri trial that showed a modest benefit of sunitinib and several trials which showed no real benefit. Do you think it's the treatment or do you think it's the patient selection? Have we not found yet the ideal patients for that therapy? Or do you think there's just a limitation of the therapy itself? That's a great question. So what, what, what's, what's the difference between the ASSURE-ME trial and ESTRAC? You know, ASSURE, which almost had 2,000 patients, and ESTRAC that had, you know, 615 patients. I mean, ESTRAC was a very wisely designed trial. It basically, unlike ASSURE, it had almost 100% clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, it didn't have any one or, two, you know, where in ASSURE, about 30% of patients were stage one or stage two that S-TRAC had zero stage one or stage two patients. These were all T3 or, or T4 patients. Um, and they, they were just much higher risk. And, and Assure, and S-TRAC was done many years after, uh, after Assure. So we were much better at giving patients these drugs. So, you know, there was, there was more, there was um, more patients who, who sort of got through the sunitinib therapy in S-TRAC than, than in Assure. So these little differences clearly probably drove the results of S-TRAC when compared to Assure. But still, what's, what's really a big question in the field is when you look at Assure and you look at the same subset of patients that were in S-TRAC and Assure, you don't see a signal. Um, but yeah, the, how to predict, there is really sort of a lot of body work that's, uh, that's coming out now is, you know, what are the biomarkers to help select patients for sunitinib? Um, and, and that's that's really just a work in progress. But uh, you know, expression levels of CD4, CD8, you know, D68, PDL1. I mean, those are the kind of things that people are looking at and trying to risk better risk stratify uh, patients. Um, but you know, it's really that's that's we're not we're not sort of in prime time yet. Um, so if you now have a patient that you identify as high risk for recurrence, and you sort of you know, explain to that patient the, the results of these trials and the um, potential benefits versus risks of sunitinib. And the patient's not really impressed by that. Uh, what other options are there? Are there other clinical trials on other agents on some of the newer uh, immunotherapeutic agents? Yeah, that's right. So, I, you know, NCCN guidelines as of today, you know, they give you three options in that situation. One is observation, one is given adjuvant sunitinib, and one is enrollment into clinical trial. And the there are two, you know, there's several clinical trials, um, there, but there's two sort of groups of these clinical trials. And they're basically using immunotherapy to substitute for the tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are, you know, either not very active or not active at all. Um, there are some of the, uh, you know, big trial um, called Emotion that uh, recently closed at many centers is, um, is a trial of atezolizumab, which is, um, which is a 
uh, anti-PD-L1 inhibitor. And that trial basically gave the immunotherapy following resection. There is a enthusiasm in the field to give the immunotherapy while the tumor is in situ, because some of the basic science work really uh, suggests that the response to immunotherapy would be better when the tumor is still in place. So there's a trial that's open to many uh, centers of excellence around the country, which is called PROSPER, which is um, uh, randomizes patients to placebo or nivolumab, which is an anti-PD-1 inhibitor. And this trial is interesting. This trial is basically when a patient presents with, um, with um, high-risk localized renal cell, they are offered this trial, and if they enroll, they get randomized. And if they get randomized to, they get, uh, to immunotherapy, they get a biopsy first, and then they get um, immunotherapy, at least one, you know, one, um, uh, one cycle of uh, nivolumab before they go on to resection. So that's a trial that you actually, in order for the patient to enroll, they have to get sent to the center before resection which is a lot of the times, you know, the patients are resected in the community and they come into the centers only afterwards. So, you know, to answer your question, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge to enroll these patients into these trials because they, they have to sort of be directed in the right, uh, to the right place at the right time. Um, but you know, what's, Victor, what's interesting to talk about is really um, uh, the, the history of adjuvant therapy um, in all of sort of in, in all cancer spaces. I mean, the idea of uh, giving patients additional therapy after resection is very, very appealing. And it is a standard of care in, you know, spaces like breast cancer or colorectal cancer. But it's interesting to look at that data. And for instance, in breast cancer, the, you know, as of a couple of years ago, the maximal disease-free survival benefit was, you know, with tamoxifen was really 11%. That's, that's the maximum. Whereas with, um, whereas the overall survival benefit in those trials was only 4%. And tamoxifen is very inexpensive. It's only, you know, monthly costs are about $13 a month. But if you look at, for instance, melanoma, where up until a few years ago, the only adjuvant option was, you know, p uh, interferon alpha uh, B, where the disease-free survival benefit was, you know, less than 7%, and the overall survival benefit was 1%. We're talking about 1%. The monthly cost was $15,000 for that drug. And same, you know, same goes for, for instance, um, some of the chemotherapy for colorectal, from the systemic therapies for colorectal cancer, you know, disease-free survival benefit of, you know, 4%, overall survival benefit of 3% with monthly costs of close to $6,000. So incredibly costly therapies with, you know, some would argue very marginal benefits. Yeah, and the, the thing that I always find curious with immunotherapy, particularly when you're, if you're treating in the non-metastatic space, um, in, in an adjuvant space is how does one determine how long to treat? You know, is treatment indefinite or is there a point where you decide, okay, we can, you know, there's been no evidence of recurrence. We can stop this now. How does one go about even designing a trial to determine that? Yeah, I mean, you know, so for instance, the Emotion trial, that was 16 cycles of itezolizumab, which was 12 months. You know, this pro I mean, it, it, they clearly set, you know, 
predetermined stopping point for the for the treatment. Generally, in these adjuvant trials, it's been a year, a year of treatment um, to see if you if you change uh, people's destiny. But the thing to really sort of um, remember is that you know t t tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy is not risk free. There's you know sort of significant side effects, but immunotherapy is even is even less risk free. I mean, there are some very significant side effects to these treatments. And what's really important is any center that opens these trials, they really have to have a very robust program to make patients uh, and providers aware of these side effects. For instance, in the early days of immunotherapy, um, things like pneumonitis um, was not, you know, if, it, if, if a side effect like pneumonitis is not recognized in a timely fashion, um, it can lead to patients' demise. For instance, somebody has signs of pneumonia, and that's it's actually pneumonitis. They present to an outside emergency room. They get admitted. They put on antibiotics. The patients can succumb to pneumonitis within you know 24, 48 hours. They really need immediate steroids. It, there needs to be immediate recognition. So what we have done at our center, what a lot of centers are doing, are giving patients bracelets and giving patients you know immunotherapy awareness cards. So if they do have some of these side effects and they do come into you know outside emergency rooms, the providers there have. Uh, you know, have uh, a, a guide and uh, really know how to treat these uh, these side effects. And really, the um, the treatments are are basically immediate um, administration of steroids. And it looks like that administration of steroids actually doesn't eliminate the uh, therapeutic benefit of these drugs, but it's very important to deliver it in timely fashion because the side effects can just be um, in, in incredibly severe. So, are there any areas related to adjuvant therapy for RCC? that we haven't covered or are evolving. Right. So it's it's really, you know, what people are trying to understand is, you know, for instance, for that for that small uh uh for that small estrac trial, you know, when which patients should receive it. And the biomarkers are coming in here and people are trying to really pick out the highest risk uh clear cell patients uh for whom to give sunitinib. Um, again, an evolving space. I think a lot of us are looking to these newer clinical trials and immunotherapy to see if there's a signal there. Um, but yeah, I mean, this 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 is one this is one of these things. It's incredibly humbling. It's you know a lot of uh, a lot of the kidney cancer centers enrolled literally you know sometimes thousands of patients in one center over the years, uh, or at least many hundreds, and r really are yet to show a result that changes clinical. Uh, clinical management, at least it changes clinical managers in most of the patients that we see. So just a very, very humbling space. You know, the 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 um, uh, metastatic space has really come such a long way, but the adjuvant space is, is you know, I think many would argue spinning wheels. So if we had to sort of identify as best we can, based on the information and the data that we have, best practices for risk assessment and patient counseling when we talk about adjuvant uh, treatment of renal cell carcinoma. Let's just take it, let's take it, take, let's have you take us through what you do, how you explain risk assessment to patients and how you counsel them for possible adjuvant therapy. Right, so patients undergo resection. If you know, and you have to remember that um, this is, you have to feel that you've gotten complete resection. The patient with 
you know, node positive disease, you, f you really have to make sure that you clear, uh, clear all the nodes. Um, in the patient with a thrombus, you, you have to make sure that, you know, s sort of the, the patient's disease free and has, um, um, uh, has no evidence of disease on post-operative imaging. But you're, if you're sitting in front of that patient and it's a, it's a PT3 or PT4 patient, or a node positive patient who got fully resected, they have to understand that they have an option of receiving one year of sunitinib at 50, uh, at 50 milligrams, okay, in a four to two schedule. What that means, that's four weeks on, two weeks off. That's 50 milligrams daily. And you can't, you can only dose reduce, um, you know, the, the, the dose reduction in S-TRAC was, um, was rather minimal. You you really have, you know, it was, uh, I believe 37 and a half milligrams you could go down to. So um, they have to understand that this, this is going to be a year of therapy. Um, the adverse events are non-trivial. So 99.7% uh, of patients in the sunitinib arbor of Estrac had some so sort of uh, adverse event. I mean, a lot of these were minor, but almost 50% had a grade three or higher adverse event. Um, so, you know, 48% had grade three, 12% had grade four. And, you know, these, 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 these are non-trivial. These are fatigue, these are uh, diarrhea, these are, um, you know, rashes, neutropenia. I mean, these are, these are some things that are really going to affect uh, one's, um, uh, one's quality of life while they're on this drug for a year. Um, you know, in 20, you know, in ESTRAC, almost 30% of patients, 20% of patients discontinued, um, discontinued sunitinib uh, due to side effects. Interestingly, 6% discontinued placebo as well. So clearly patients are not feeling great after these surgeries. And so some of them discontinue even placebo. But um, there was, you know, over 50% of dose interruption or dose delay. I mean, it's a challenging thing to receive. And dose reduction occurred in almost half. It was in 46% of patients. Um, and so... You know, you have to tell them the chance of completing this one-year course is about a 50-50. It's 56% completed, and so they have to they have to understand that this is a year where they're really investing into into what into having the same overall survival, uh, but having um, but having but but having their scans uh, be um, be disease-free for an extra year. Um, and I, I think that's a tough discussion. Uh, you know, it's, you know, your disease-free survival with sunitinib was 6.8 years and with placebo was 5.6 years. So um, I think it's a discussion and some, there, there are definitely patients who say it's such a distressor to me to have, you know, to, sometimes I, I sort of role play with them and, and say, well, imagine if you had a pulmonary nodule um, on your, on your follow-up scans, okay? How, dist how distressing would that be to you? And some people say that would be very, very distressing. And so there, I think there, there's a big deliverable to sort of living, uh, you know, an additional year plus with these negative scans. But I, I think to a lot of patients, and that's what, you know, these surveys, like for instance, there was a, there was a survey uh, reported at GUASCO this year where, you know, 25% of patients said that they really need an overall survival benefit in order for them to undergo one year of, um, uh, of having these drugs on board and having the side effects. 
Um, so I, I think it's it, it's a tough decision for patients. I think it's a tough decision for physicians. I mean, at some some centers as a group really have made a collective decision to not push adjuvant sunitinib. Some uh, some practices do offer it. Uh, I think what I think is important. It's important to know the data and to counsel your patients on w- what the deliverables are and what the limitations are. But right now, um, enrollment into clinical trials is is really what I would advocate. And the last question I want to ask you is when you have a patient um, in in this adjuvant space, in your center, what is the role of the urologist versus the role of the medical oncologist? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it really depends on um, on where you practice and there are there are certainly practices that do a terrific job, uh, urology practices that do a terrific job, sort of managing, you know, these drugs and managing the side effects. And you know, I, I think there's a, a lot in the house of urology who feel that this belongs in in the in sort of the urology domain. You know, the medical oncologists feel like this is this is their core expertise. Obviously, I think at a lot of the tertiary referral centers. This, you know, the urologists are so surgically busy that we don't have the bandwidth to really manage this, and we really rely on our medical oncologists heavily to 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 uh, guide our patients through this. But there's certainly, you know, especially the uh, large urology groups that have taken this on and uh, you know feel like they can manage the patients appropriately uh, without sort of um, uh, medical oncology. Uh, holding their hand, you know, sort of every step of the way. And I, I think where those, um, uh, how, how this is handled, I think, as long as you're, you, you have the core expertise and as long as you understand how to manage the side effects and you really understand these agents, um, I, I think it is, it, it is something that's within the domain of urology, but clearly a moving target and clearly, you know, something that's debated pretty vehemently uh, within urology itself and between urology and medical oncology. But um, I, I think the, the really the litmus test here is to do right by the patient and uh, make sure you're delivering the same kind of care if you're taking this on that the medical oncologist would deliver. Right. I think that's uh, excellent advice uh, um, for those who uh, want to take this on and feel that they have the expertise as a urologist. That's fine, but uh, let's not deny our patients uh, at least the choice. Um, and if we're not wanting to do it ourselves, then to refer to uh, one of our colleagues who, who may very well be a medical oncologist um, who could at least um, discuss these options and offer these options to patients. Agreed. Well, Alex, that was uh, that was a terrific overview of where we stand with adjuvant therapy and um, from where I sit, I guess it's it's still an area that's evolving and uh, still an area where uh, hopefully we'll see uh, some advances. And, um, you know, I, I guess, uh, as you mentioned in the clinic, in, in your comment about clinical trials, it seems that this is an area that's certainly ripe for enrollment of patients in clinical trials so that we can um, come up with uh, therapies and protocols that are going to give um, more, uh, uh, more benefit than, um, perhaps, um, a, a, a year of, uh, uh, a year of better looking scans and, 
um, a less even impact on overall survival. That's uh, right. So yeah, we, just huge, got, we just got to keep working at it. Absolutely. Huge opportunities that are yet untapped. That's right. Well, again, Alex, thank you so much for uh, your time and, particip- and for participating in this podcast. I'd also like to thank our audience for listening. Uh, and as always, if you would like more information, you can visit us at uh, auanet.org slash university. Again, Alex, thanks for a great podcast. Thanks so much for having me.